Yeah, I'm doing a Christopher Montesanti voice. They're called DAOs, Tony. They're called DAOs, and we and, and we need to, we need to, we need to be thinking about ways of updating oh this God. thing of ours. Yo, <laughs> you're reminding me. One of my friends made this fucking meme. I loved it. Um, I have to I have to read it. It's Howard Gavinson. <laughs> uh, it's about NFTs and the Christopher Montesanti uh, voice. It's called a non-fuckable token. They're worth so much money because they're made of computers. <laughs> it's Hello, friends and enemies. It's episode 122 of This Machine Kills. I'm Jathan, joined by Ed and producer Jeremy, as always. I think it's time to start digging into something that... I've I've personally been trying to avoid getting too heavy into it just because there's so many fucking, you know, new buzzwords, new movements, new this and new that that are constantly cropping up. Uh, and, 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 you know, we only have so much mental energy and so much time to devote to stuff, but we're going, let's talk DAOs. Let's talk web three. It's like, this shit ain't going away. Uh, that was my hope. My hope is that if I just ignored it long enough, it would just go away. Uh, and then we wouldn't have to talk about it and I wouldn't have to think about it in any kind of serious way. But I think it's, it's, it's due time, uh, to at least try to provide some kind of explainer, some kind of, uh, uh, you know, notes towards a critical analysis of DAOs and Web3 and decentralization and autonomy and all this kind of, uh, you know, all, all these buzzwords that are su- suddenly cropping up um, everywhere and having a lot of money put behind them, a lot of promises put behind them. Yeah, I just don't think it's going away, not because it's like something, you know, that's necessarily new and innovative and disruptive, but more so through the like sheer force of will and sheer force of wealth uh, that's being poured into um, making DAOs happen. You know, I'm I'm thinking of the mean girls, you know, quit trying to make fetch happen. And I'm, I'm looking at all the, all the discords full of NFT traders. I'm looking at all the hype around like the, the, the Twitter communities. And I'm, I'm, I'm saying to them, quit trying to make DAOs happen happen. Quit trying to make NFTs happen. <laughs> but they ain't listening to me, Ed. They ain't listening. Yeah, it's because I think because there's a lot of, um, you know, DAOs, NFTs, crypto, Web 3.0. I think a lot of it is um, there's a good chunk of it of people who are boosters that are really, there's one group that are enthusiastic about the capacity to to disrupt stodgy old previous iterations of legal contracts of financial institutions of currency of, of, of contractual enforcement there's another part that doesn't really understand what they're talking about and is getting things confused and mixed up and then there's other that are just like you know cynical grifters and it is really hard to spot all of them uh, because they all have different they all speak the same language but they all have different interests and they all can be part of the same project right so I think one thing we definitely want to do here is like to try to tease out when it comes, you know, DAOs, and you know, we've been talking about the structure of DAOs, but also using the acronyms as sort of, you know, lodestar. Talking about decentralization in crypto, talking about the uh, the autonomous, the autonomous nature <laughs> <laughs> of 
uh, that is professed by crypto boosters, and then just and also talking about the organization of them, because uh, I think what you will find a lot of cases DAOs are neither you know like the fucking Voltaire quote they're neither decentralized they're they're ne- or autonomous or organized particularly you know they're just um uh, there's a wide variety of them and there's also a wide divergence in the understanding of the underlying technology of decentralized finance of blockchain of smart contracts that means that it's more useful for us to just like dive into those things and those core elements of DAOs and then bring it to what what DAO actually is with our understanding as well as like some interesting ones that some leftists have been advocating for I think the frameworks to like understand them. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, this this is I think this is helpful right away is to say so a DAO or a decentralized autonomous organization. Like I think if we try to understand it uh, as as a whole, it becomes very difficult. Like you know, when I was trying to wrap my head around all right, what exactly is a DAO? Uh, it really didn't start clicking with me about what it's meant about what they're kind of meant to be until I started picking apart each of those three parts of the acronym. You know, not trying to understand it as a as a as a as a as a constituent whole, but really understand it as a thing that's made up of these three different aspects of decentralization, of autonomy, and organization. Um, that's when it really started falling in place. And, and I mean, also, I think understanding this as well as, uh, uh, you know, very much, you know, intimately linked to the blockchain in every single way. And one of the ways that people are, tr- you know, blockchain boosters are trying to make blockchain into a thing in reality. Because I think right now, like there are applications of blockchain, um, you know, that that work to varying uh, degrees, you know, but I think for the most part, blockchain right now is pretty limited, at least in its like major applications to crypto, right? Like that's the main application of blockchain technology, at least the one that we know about the most, that gets the most attention, that has the most kind of money and 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 push behind it is, you know, cryptocurrency. But for blockchain boosters, they see it as this like, as, as this kind of like universal technology, right? That's meant to to be the underpinnings of all forms of social relations and social organizing that's meant to, you know, obviate and replace, uh, you know, finance and law and concept and also concepts like trust uh, and security, right? Like for, for blockchain boosters, this is, blockchain is the universal solution to any problem that you pose to them, you know, essentially. And, and I think DAOs are one way that they are trying to make it into a material thing in the world that actually exists outside of high speculative, uh, high, high volatility cryptocurrency. So when we think about decentralization, right, is this like this, you know, the framework that the, the place where a lot of the discussions land, it usually comes down to the use of blockchain, but also to the way in which, um, Crypto, when applied to financial instruments and also to assets, uh, democratizes them and involves more people, allows freer allocation of resources, more more ideal outcomes in the marketplace, more ideal and efficient and optimal uses of your capital, of your time or your labor and so on and so forth, right? 
But I think that usually when you, you know, if you look at it as recent studies have been beginning to over the past few years, this is, this is almost never, this is almost never the case. Um, I think one place to start, for example, might be the rhetoric around how, or maybe we can step back, right? So the, 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 the premise of the decentralization argument comes from uh, the, the use of the premise of uh, this technology on blockchain, right? Uh, and blockchain in of itself is a pretty uh, useful tech. It's, you know, a digital ledger, essentially, right? And this digital ledger is, you know, a database that a lot, you know, is it's decentralized in its presence on computers and their networks, right? And so whenever a transaction occurs, you can, you imagine these transactions and on this ledger blocked into, you're grouped into blocks, right? And then these blocks are, you know, represented as blocks of code, which are chained together. And that, so your ledger, instead of just being a literal readout of all the transactions, is block and a block and a block and a block all chained together and appended together, right? This means that all of the transactions are legible to the public and that you can also encrypt and ensure the security of this this ledger, right? So no one can alter the history of the transaction, right? And so that they're all verified as going on and having had happened, right? But all of this happens without the use of a central authority, whether it's a state, whether it's a bank, whether it is some sort of hierarchical authority or form that we wouldn't otherwise want involved in uh, these sorts of transactions. And so this is in of itself like an interesting development and something that then is used to say, okay, well, if we can take out the middleman in verifying transactions, right, and ensuring the security of the system, we can take out the middleman in financial uh, domains, for example. So we can cut out banks and we can have decentralized forms of finance. We can have exchanges that don't rely on banks to provide and inject capital or central banks to uh, inject capital. We don't have to rely on banks to, prov- you know, to also inject capital. We don't have to rely on any massive financial institution. But when you also look at when you look at the the exchanges, when you look at the large the places where capital and where all these assets are being traded, what you do find is that there's still, in fact, the same exact patterns in the typical centralized, um, highly speculative, highly financialized economy as you know in as there are in this crypto space. There was one recent study that looked at Coinbase, for example, right, and looked at how institutional investors are trading and the volume of their trades versus the share of the total platform. So in about the past, I want to say two years, right, going from the first quarter of 2019 to the, uh, to, the, uh, to the final fiscal quarter of 2020, which stretches into the first few months of 2021, you would see that hedge funds, banks, these large institutional investors, represent 1% of Coinbase's user base, but they account for 64% of all the trading volume and 50% of all the platform assets, where, and, you know, so, of course, democrat, democratization of finance as well in the live there, right? You also would see with uh, trading, for example, of crypto assets like NFTs, where a recent study that was uh, published by Nature showed that when looking at 6.1 million NFT trades, the top 10% of all traders accounted for 85% of all the transactions, 97% of all the assets, and that 10% of buyer pairs, buyer seller pairs, have the same amount of volume as the remaining 90%. So, what does this mean? 
So this would mean that what is actually happening in a network that has an underlying decentralized technology is that the decentralization in of itself doesn't magically yield better, more just, more equitable outcomes because that's a technological progression maybe, but not like an amendment to the actual social, to the social and political uh, situation in which this technology is developed. And that's a deeply unequal one where institutional investors are always, you know, still going to pour in the most amount of money that they're also going to be the ones who are driving the trades and that the most of the people who are doing trades are going to be using them likely to wash, which is essentially to just inflate the price of an asset and then dump it on someone else. But this is, I think, more or less things like this are usually dismissed, right, as individual problems to be confronted or market problems and not really indicative of what we see in crypto in general, that the lack of decentralization in these in these frontier cases of you know a large market a large crypto exchange and also the NFT market in general don't speak to the fact that the technology underlying it is decentralized. But it is hard to it is hard to really take seriously, I think, if you step back and look at it, it's hard to take seriously the, the insistence that the decentralization is politics because if it was, then why is it that it's replicating the way that stocks operate, where the top twenty percent have, or you know, the top twenty percent of the country has almost all of the stocks, or has most of the ownership of stocks, but that it's really closer to the top one to ten percent because the next ten percent of that, uh, or the upper decile, the top ten percent, right, hold most of it, and then, then you know the next there's another ten percent that's included when you um, you know you include pensions or you include like retirement savings. That's not really a, you know active stock ownership that we are talking about, analogous to how the centralization of finance is present in crypto. And in crypto assets. So is it decentralized? I think it's decentralized in the fundamentally, or the technology offers the promise of decentralization. But that a lot of the projects, if you look at them, or a lot of the, you know, uh, a lot of ways that things are manifest is not typically decentralized, right? And then we can, and you know, we'll talk a little bit later about DAOs as a specific example, because DAOs, I think, have a wide range of centralization and decentralization. You can have DAOs where people are radically involved in voting on each aspect of how the code is designed, of the protocols that are going to be used for governance, about what the treasury is going to be used for. You have other DAOs where the community has no say in anything other than like a very narrow set of purchases and doesn't have any say in designing what side of assets are going to be issued, what kind of tokens are going to be issued, what are the ways in which revenue is going to be raised, what are the ways in which um, to- uh, people can stake uh, their stake coins. So basically, like where governance for DAOs, another thing we should have added, governance for DAOs is done through tokens. A very explicit, you vote with your dollar uh, system, where the more money you have, the more tokens you can you can acquire in a DAO. And one platform might allow you to say, I'm going to take these tokens with a DAO, lock them up with you, provide liquidity for other people to get more tokens in the in the process of whatever schemes you're doing to raise revenue. And as they're buying these tokens, right, and you're holding them for me, then I would like some other type of token in exchange or more of the governance tokens. And then that would increase my vote share or incentivize me to keep increasing my vote share, incentivize me to wait with and stay with the project. This is um, 
you know, these systems in of themselves, you can already begin to see whether like buy with buy votes with your dollar system, with the introduction of institutional investors into this equation, into the way in which assets are traded or washed instead of actually just, you know, more freely flowing to this bottom 90%. It just is, there are larger things than the technology at work here. The technology is not sufficient. This decentralized tech a technique that they've innovated maybe is not enough to rest and save the space from the speculation and the centralization that we see elsewhere. Our episode here is very much kind of building on and diving even deeper into a, a really good discussion you recently had in the in the new episode of 10,000 Post, uh, hosted by friends of the show, Hussein Kasfani and Phoebe Roy. You know, you were talking about DAOs and, and you know, uh, so, so just a shout out to, to that podcast, a shout out to that, your appearance on there. And, you know, we're going to dive even deeper into it. But, you know, everything, when, when you started explaining just now, you know, how this, how the, the kind of governance of these decentralized organizations work through tokens and stuff. What strikes me so much is that it's essentially like, it's like you got a lot of, you got a bunch of like fintech bros in a room. You gave them all the men in black neuralizer and then, uh, and then they all just like, uh, reverse engineered how, uh, corporations work. Right. Where it's like, you know, instead of saying you own, you know, voting shares, you own uh, governance tokens. Right. And uh, it's like truly do not see or understand the difference here. Right. It's like, oops, uh, it's, you know, BlackRock bought up, you know, 60 percent of the governance tokens for my DAO. So now they de facto um, have us have con- like controlling power over uh, all decisions of this decentralized autonom- autonomous organization. Decentralization as this as as this kind of buzzword does a lot of work in in much the same way democratization did a lot of work for like web 2.0 you know which you know the social web right it's democratizing uh access to content it's democratizing this it's democratizing that right like you know robin hood was supposed to uh democratize uh you know retail trading for stocks um facebook democratized access to uh you know posting or or whatever right like in, in much the same way that democratization was the key kind of lodestar, um, you know, fuzzword, if you will, right? A kind of buzzword that's fuzzy, that, you know, it's ambiguity does a lot of the work. Um, decentralization, it, it seems to be doing the same thing, but for Web3 or Web3.0, which is supposed to be this, like, the internet based on on this distri- you know this decentralized blockchain infrastructure rather than a uh, a server client relationship right we're all we're all servers and all clients at the same time but as you really laid out here as well um, for whatever reason mysteriously uh, they never want to talk about distribution right it's always democratization it's always decentralization 
but never one of, but never distribution or redistribution. And this is why we end up seeing that like mysteriously, uh, you know, the, these different ways of organizing the internet or organizing information or organizing access and ownership, et cetera, um, start replicating the same exact distribution of the real economy. Because again, distribution is just not what they're interested in. They're, they're, they'd much rather draw our attention to these other kind of fuzzwords of democratization or decentralization. What Dow sounds like is it sounds like a libertarian's idea of what a what bureaucracy and government should be. Those with like the most money get the most say. It's essentially kind of what we're living in now, like with a lobby system. The uh, philosophy, I guess, behind the way Dow's works is it's like there in the forefront and just letting you know. If you got the most tokens, you get the biggest voice. Yeah. I mean, essentially. No, I, I mean, I think that's right. I think I think it very much is a kind of libertarian approach to the question of bureaucracy and, and uh, administration. You know, and I think that it's also interesting to see that a lot of the rhetoric also about decentralization is deeply aligned with far right wing you know, base right-wing rhetoric. I think uh, David Columbia has written a lot extensively about this. His book, Politics of Bitcoin, Software as a Right-Wing Extremism, uh, spends a lot of time fleshing out the intellectual origins or spends you know a good chunk of it uh, fleshing out the, the intellectual origins and, and connecting it to conspiratorial theories about central banks, um, you know, running the world or taking over the world, but more generally to economic theories of these of libertarians and ushering uh, school of economics uh, boosters, you know, like uh, Hayek or Rothbard who had this vague notion of basically creating this sort of uh, sort of a master computer, as he put it, right, um, with the market or turning the market into a, a master computer, a, a sort of perfect computational um, and knowledge generation machine that will surpass humans, surpass their ability to know, and only through the master computer, only through this ex- exquisite cultivation of knowledge only through the quantification of everything, only through the extraction of information from everything and every transaction or the codification of everything and every into a set of transactions uh, and commodities can you really optimally distribute things. And that until then, everything is an inefficiency. Everything is a waste. Everything is defective. Whether it's the price of labor, whether it's the price of goods, whether it's the price of services, no matter that the goal here as we'll talk about, especially with the autonomous part of DAO, the goal here is to try to reconstruct the political economy of society to one that it is a lot of transactions that are not mediated by, first of all, transforming interactions into transactions, second of all, enclosing the digital world and then and, and turning most of everything you do into a private or into a digitized and then a privatized good or service, healthcare, browsing, um, communication, even land on the internet or digital land on the internet uh, through like real estate NFTs as an example, or the metaverse. Um, all of that gets commodified, all of that gets quantified, all of that gets, turns into transactions, all of that allows us to figure out what is the price that everyone should pay for this or that thing when they're moving through life constantly. And one way to do that, you know, 
admittedly, you can't really do that with uh, centralized authorities that we have now, but maybe you could do that with an autonomous sort of thing. And so I think that also leads us then to our um, to the discussion that emerges about smart contracts, which are like, I think, the one of the more interesting, but also, I mean, I think probably the most dangerous development that comes out of crypto, right? Um, smart contracts are an application of the uh, of the blockchain tech, essentially, right? And so, you know, the core idea of it is that you have a set of terms uh, that two parties agree to, and the computer code is introduced to lock them in, um, and then those terms, when they're met, result in the automatic, automatic, you know, uh, activation or enforcement of the contract. And so in this example, you know, one phrase that people like to throw around is that the code is law. So smart contracts will underwrite. Smart contracts are a development that emerges after the the rise of the Ethereum coin, the Ethereum platform, uh, developed by Vitalik Buterin, right? Um, you know, who's the programmer that created it, who in his, I think, or original paper kind of, you know, kind of lays out that he is, you know, influenced again by this sort of Hayekian, Rothbardian uh, school of economics and conception of society where there's nothing beyond these sort of transactions and commodities because that's what will allow us to make sure everything is smooth and efficient. And that's a core part of the smart contract boosting and framework and, le- and rhetoric. These transactions are smooth. They can allow seamless, you know, enforcement you know, uh, one paper that we will we refer to, and we're going to refer to a lot here, is uh, "Book Smart, Not Street Smart," um, and this is uh, a paper out of Cornell University by Karen E. C. Levy. You know, and and this paper, she uses some examples to t- uh, talk about like how, in theory, clean this can be, right? So, for as an example, right, you know, we can talk about the Internet of Things, as as uh, you know, Jason has, as we have on the show. And this theory that, you know, you can embed more and more of smart tech into devices so that they're constantly communicating with each other and put a lock on your home. So let's say you're an Airbnb landlord, that you, the contract comes into effect once the key goes into the door, right? And then the contract, once the contract ends, at the end of the lease, the key no longer works for the door. Something as simple as that, right? Um, it could help with just-in-time. A production or with uh, logistics for ensuring that once you receive some shipment or once you receive some good, that if it's within a certain time frame, you get payment at this level, and if not, then at another level, right? Uh, but but here the goal is, and along the lines of like Hayek and these other, and these other groups of you know sort of vaguely libertarian. Economists looking to looking to figure out how to make the market work as efficiently as possible. Mm-hmm. How can we take as much information as possible um, and use it to ensure that the contract is as tight as possible, right? And, and typically, as, as Levy writes, le- contracts don't work like this, right? She writes that typically contract terms are written and acceded to, and then if need be enforced in distinct phases, if a contract is breached, the wrong party must take action to recognize or document the harm, establish the other party's responsibility for the harm, perhaps initiate a legal proceeding, which is to establish the breach and ensure that any damages are paid to make her whole again, that is to bring her to, into a, the financial position she would have been in if the contract had been fulfilled. And importantly, the enforcement phase depends formally on centralized institutions, courts, 
uh, to intermediate disputes and on a plane of taking affirmative steps that require access to multiple kinds of resources, including knowledge, money, and time. And so in short, traditional contract enforcement is messy and is resource intensive, and that this is an inefficiency that emerges in the process that smart contracts are in a good position to uh, get rid of. And Mm -hmm. on some level they are, because... Uh, yes, if you have more resources, if you have more knowledge, if you have more money, if you have more influence, you're able to get a better outcome in the courts, of, for example, or in the political arena or in whatever arena where contracts might normally mediate some uh, sort of outcome and are supposed to ostensibly be there for, for fairer and more equal, more just outcomes, right? But then was one of the first problems we come into with, with block. With blockchain, you know, based uh, smart contracts, is that it's pretty easy. There are a few ways that you can bypass um, the supposed benefits, right? One is like if you simply lose your blockchain private key, the thing that authenticates your ownership. Um, if you lose that, you know, in a regular contract, in a traditional contract, in a dumb contract, we might call them, there are procedures for which you could then prove ownership, you know, and then reclaim ownership or, or, re, or and, and establish some sort of claim. Um, Whereas if you're doing it through a smart contract, you unless you came up with that beforehand, and even then you still would have to define in terms that can't be changed once the contract is written, you'd have to come up with all of this in beforehand, essentially plan and anticipate these possibilities and outcomes, and then hope that something unpredictable doesn't happen. Because if it does and the code doesn't allow for it, then you can't do it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, then there's also the question, it's like, okay, what if you what if you lost all that in the fire? And then the way to, to establish a claim is you need to have some alternative proof of of ownership or some some otherly some other accepted, you know, proof of connection to these resources that could then be accepted by another smart contract. Well again, like it's still the problem of anticipating all of these scenarios beforehand. These are these are like just like very small examples of how if you don't code it into the law beforehand, you you can't um, anticipate what's going to happen or you can't solve the issue. But it also speaks to how smart contracts have a narrow conception of what the law actually is, right? They believe that it's just a very technical flat level and that it's it's only focusing on preventative sort of security measures, correct? And, and thinking that there's narrow use cases or narrow scenarios and the, te- and the, and the goal of the smart contract is to just solve that one instead of mm-hmm. ignoring that Contracts are also social, and, and they also deal with human beings, and they also deal with the real world, and they also deal with a variety of things that don't that are a little bit more complex than a one-to-one substitution with like lock for smart lock, right? Um, uh, or some or, or gate for or smart gate that you can't, you still can't substitute enforcement, you still can't substitute like quantification of the harms, you still can't substitute like negotiation, you still can't substitute all the other things because they're not like things you can easily securitize, which is what all of this stuff is trying to do. It's just trying to make sure we can securitize everything, quantify it, figure out the value for it, figure out you fallback scenarios to, to cover for it. And then that's it. That's like, that's all that the law is. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think the, the idea of a smart contract is where a lot of the rubber really hits the road here as well. You know, the, the paper you mentioned by Karen Levy, uh, and Karen is a fantastic scholar of law and technology, and she wrote this paper, you know, back in 2017. So, you know, really preempting, a, you know, 
all of the discussion now around like DAOs and stuff, but you know, also just kind of seeing the trajectory here. And a lot of the paper is really based on this analysis of, yeah, like how is a smart, what, like what's a socio-legal analysis of smart contracts, right? Like how does it compare to, yeah, a dumb contract? Uh, and, and also what are some of the implications here as well? If smart contracts start to proliferate in society, you know, I, I think this is where, we can start seeing how something like a DAO, you know, vis-a-vis, uh, you know, the implementation of a smart contract might actually start having, uh, you know, real material effects in, in, in real life, in the real economy, uh, in the real world. Uh, and, and, you know, it's not hard to start imagining a world where all of the con- all of the different contracts we enter into and abide to and govern our lives are replaced by a smart contract and as you know a smart contract as you laid out is really just quite a a, a blunt application of algorithmic logic to a contract it's a if then logic right if x uh, if X happens, then Y uh, outcome occurs. You know, as, as you mentioned, like with the, you know, all, you know, we can think about that in terms of like, um, yeah, like a lease. You know, a rental lease is a contract that the, that most of us probably have, unless you own your own home. Good for you, uh, but most of us probably have a rental, uh, you know, lease, and that's a contract that that we have to abide to. Um, and and as you were saying, right, like a smart contract is a, is meant to be judge, jury, and executioner all wrapped into one. As she puts it, as as Karen Levy puts it, quote, in a sense, smart contracts aim to collapse contract formation and enforcement into a single instrument. And and so, yeah, I, I mean, the motivation here is very much what you what you were just laying out around like this is meant to make it more efficient it's meant to make it more seamless and frictionless it's meant to cut down on transaction cost um, while also at the same time uh, proliferating transactions throughout our lives right everything everything needs to be organized within this one social relation of the the transaction you know it's a very economic relationship but that's you know that's the idea here is that everything social political ethical cultural anything else any other form of relationship or relation that we might have in society it becomes reduced down to and simplified into a uh, trans uh, a transactional relationship which is formed and enforced by a technology by an automated decision-making system, a smart contract, and you know the thing with a uh, uh, the thing with smart contracts is that there's there's no room for flexibility. There's no room for empathy. There's no room for argument. Right? You cannot argue with an algorithm. It's a binary logic. If then. Did this happen? Okay, then this happens. If that thing did not happen, then this does not happen, right? There, there's no room there for, for discussion. Um, but I think it's also very interesting as well to think about that how you know smart contracts are not only seeking to replace all the legal contracts we enter into around like leasing a home, for example, or around you know um, purchasing a thing, uh, a good or service, but also social contracts as well, right? Like, you know, I'm, uh, 
Ed, Jeremy, we're all friends, but are we really friends unless we have a smart contract governing our friendship, right? What if you do something that breaches the terms of our friendship? Uh, well, what's the recourse there, right? I mean, that that's a social contract and I need a smart contract to help be the judge, jury, and executioner of our friendship. You know, it, but, you know, that sounds satirical, but that is, that is act, that is quite literally the logic at play here in terms of thinking about how blockchain can form, uh, the infrastructure of trust, right? It's very much that like old Reagan, uh, you know, aphorism that Ronald Reagan used to say all the time, trust, but verify my man just did not, he didn't know about the blockchain. That was the only problem with Reagan. He didn't know about the blockchain. If he knew about the blockchain, then that would, that's your trust and verification all wrapped up in one. And yeah, it starts to look very antisocial very quickly. Uh, once you start thinking about, you know, what, what, what does a world of a proliferation of smart contracts actually look like? It, it, it starts looking quite authoritarian and quite totalitarian in a lot of ways, right? We can think about it as like automated authoritarianism. There's been a lot of discussion of, uh, as well about like, you know, what if we could make enforcement of law a smart contract, you know, something that doesn't, that, that bypasses the courts altogether and has wrapped up in it, uh, enforcement, uh, kind of as an in, integral part of the contract, uh, as an automated part of the contract. So, you know, what happens if you break a law, right? You, uh, you, you speed them down the road, uh, you jaywalk, you do, you know, you do something, you break some kind of law. And, you know, there's been a lot of studies that show all of us break laws every single day, right? There's a lot of laws out there and, and, and we're breaking them constantly, uh, most of the time without us even knowing it. Uh, and, and that's because there's a lot of discrepancy in terms of enforcement uh, in that law. And there's a lot of discretion in terms of how the law is enforced. I mean, this is one of the things that, you know, uh, makes you know, racist policing. This is where the rubber hits the road as well with things like racist policing is that, you know, um, communities of color oftentimes have the law enforced on them in a way that um, white communities do not have the law enforced on them, right? And it's not because uh, there's, you know, de facto two separate legal systems or not, or rather it's not because de jure there's two separate legal systems, but because de facto there are two separate legal systems. Um, smart contract is like, let's do away with all of that dis discretion of enforcement, all of that discre discrepancy in enforcement. And instead everybody is always already uh, under uh, the terms of a smart contract. And if you break that law, then some kind of automated enforcement happens. Like that's really quite, the, that's the logic at play here. And it starts looking very totalitarian, right? It's not like let's do some kind of equity where, you know, maybe the law is uh, uh, unethical or immoral in some way. And so we need to change the law. Instead, it's like, it's a, it's a very blanket, form of equality rather than equity where it's like, no, everybody just needs to have the law enforced on them at this in, in the same exact way. Uh, and, and that starts looking very authoritarian while also doing apolog you know, apologetics for uh, the system as a whole. It doesn't change anything structurally. It just makes the structure, it just 
it, it injects steroids into the structure, makes it more powerful, makes it able to enforce, be like I said, be that judge, jury, and executioner. But it's a computer doing it, right? It's an it's an algorithm doing it. It's not a human doing it. So there's not even room for uh for for arguing. There's not even room for uh, appealing it at all. You can't appeal an algorithmic decision. I mean, people we've seen RoboCop. We've, we've seen these outcomes already. Like I'm continuing sci-fi week. Every week is sci-fi week for me, but like <laughs> this shit continues on. We've already seen pop culture references to all this shit, but yet the, the same people that have seen these movies time in and time out are the ones that are so hard up on having it all work because they look at it as a means to make more money. Uh, in fact, there's a there's a really good paragraph from um, Karen Levy's piece that I want to quote here, where she says, quote, Of course, this isn't to say that there is no role for automated contracts, nor that such contracts might introduce some desirable social consequences with respect to equitable access to justice. As we have discussed, a good deal of non-enforcement of contractual obligations results from the high transaction cost of taking someone to court. To the extent that smart contracts would reduce these transaction costs, they might beneficially remove an impediment to less resourced parties' contractual rights. At the same time, automated enforcement of contractual obligations, particularly when such obligations are instantiated via interconnected smart objects, seems likely to have detrimental effects on under-resourced people who often depend on even asymmetric transaction costs to grant them a buffer within which to operate. Consider, for example, several recent cases in which subprime lenders have used starter interrupter devices to remotely and immediately disable vehicles whenever a borrower falls behind on payments to the great detriment of borrowers. So this is also part of that as well, where it's like, you know, so as as we talked about earlier, some of the arguments for smart contracts are like, no, this is great because it means that, you know, there's there's a lot of asymmetries in terms of um, creating contracts and enforcing contracts. And if you have more resources, then you can get better outcomes in the court. You can actually afford to take people to court and so on. But on the flip side as well, there's a lot of contracts that we are that we enter into throughout our lives, like having a lease on a home or a lease on a car, that we actually re- rely quite heavily on transaction cost of implement of enforcing those contracts to give us a bit of leeway right you you're you're a week behind on your uh on your car payment well you know you can float you can flow the check right you can write a check you can date it for you know uh a, a few days you know after payday or something you can float that check um, you know, it gives you that buffer time. You actually are, you know, you take advantage of those transaction costs. You're, you're late on uh, rent, you know, you go to your landlord and, you know, you could at least have a conversation with the landlord and be like, hey, you know, don't evict me. Like, just give me three days, right? My, my job didn't pay me, but, but you know, it's coming, three days. And, you know, uh, unless you're living with a, a, you know, unless you got a slumlord, which they absolutely do exist, uh, then then you might get that. You you know, you might get some of that leeway. But a smart contract uh, takes all of that possibility out completely. It says no, it's not a person, 
it's a it's an algorithm. It's a computer that you're talking to, saying, "No, you in I, you see right here on the blockchain, it says it says you were going to do this thing. Uh, it's right here in the ledger. And if you didn't do this thing, then this other outcome, uh, this other consequence happens instead. It's it's that kind of stuff. I, I'm also thinking about like I wrote I wrote this like speculative fiction story. Uh, back in like 2014 or 2015, a while back ago, where I was imagining essentially like what would a kind of control society, um, you know, you know, what, what, you know, based on the kind of logics and trajectories of the control society that we can already see vis-a-vis smart technology and digital capitalism, like what would that look like if we just follow those logics to their to their endpoint, and and you know, think about things like. Uh, parks or shopping malls that are only accessible to you if you have a, 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 a high enough credit score. You know, we don't want the riffraff in our fancy shopping mall, right? In order to enter this shopping mall, you need to have a, 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 you know, a, a high enough credit score. Show us that you, you are a good citizen in the economy. Smart contracts are one way of actually making that happen in reality, right? Where you go... You you go to enter the shopping mall. You scan your QR code, and it it, it, you know, it runs a check on you, and it says, "All right, congratulations! You got a credit score of 750. You 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 can come in. You can hang out. You can shop around. You can browse in this mall or in this private park. Uh, that's fine. Like awesome. Oh, I'm sorry. Your shot. Your your credit score is below 750. These doors ain't opening for you. There's no person there doing that, right? It's just an algorithm. It's just a smart contract uh, that that's enforcing that. Like that was that was like a, a this like dystopian uh, you know speculative fiction that I I was out you know outlining in like 2015, really imagining like, damn, what would this shit look like if it was used in the worst po- in like the worst antisocial way possible? And then and then all of a sudden DAOs come up and smart contracts come up and people are like damn yeah that sounds dope we should do that <laughs> that's a good idea <laughs> everybody thanked uh, jathan for writing the uh the torture nexus uh, story um for the torture nexus startup <laughs> 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 the smart contracts section up, there's sort of like three sets of problems that are worth considering that that smart contracts can't really address or don't seem to be capable of really addressing or seem to overlook because they don't understand that these are problems. So one thing is unenforceability and and how contracts can often have terms within them that are unenforceable unenforceable in practice but are there nonetheless because of certain behavioral factors so I think uh, one example that almost everybody is familiar with well there are a few but one is like you know let's say uh, drugs right uh, you know courts cannot issue legal agreements or enforce legal agreements where it was like me and Jathan are going to exchange a fifth of shrooms 
every week for X amount of dollars and then one of us doesn't and we got we're not gonna go to court over it. Like that's not gonna happen, right? You know, uh black market stuff is mediated through other means, like violence, um, or other or you know, other social uh dimensions, right? That a smart contract can't really account for. Um, there are negative unenforceable clauses that we are also all familiar with. For example, your landlord putting in clearly illegal language that says, uh, you cannot do this or that. You are not, I am allowed to go in your house and evict you with, uh, 24 hours of notice. No, the fuck you are not. The union, like, you know, like a lot of states have specific rules on how long a landlord would actually have to give you a heads up and, and what they would be allowed to do in process of eviction and what steps and rights you're allowed to, right? But that's another example in which there is a clearly unenforceable contra- uh, clause in a contract. Post-employment clauses have, there are uh, often non-employment clauses, right? Um, which, uh, again, are clauses that a lot of states rule unenforceable and yet they're included. Okay. So why are they included? Well, part of it is the transaction costs. Like we talked about earlier, where it just is so fucking expensive to go to court that, uh, the party who's in a position to negotiate the terms, um, can just do it and believes that you won't pay that transaction cost. Also because they have the belief that you believe it's going to be valid simply by its inclusion. And don't really know the law and don't really know that like companies and landlords put non-enforceable clauses into their contracts all the time, right? So uncertainty, imperfect knowledge, these are things which smart contracts purport to solve and would in these sort of negative instances. But there are others that are we might interpret as positive ones, right? So one example that Levy gave is a really salient one. And it's, it's specifically about how in the 1990s, a lot of American universities um, retained or enacted uh, speech codes, hate speech codes specifically, right? Um, uh, banning or explicitly prohibiting, um, you know, demeaning speech, harassment, and so forth. Now, all of this is clearly like unconstitutional. It's unconstitutional to like have hate speech, these sorts of hate speech codes. But even though it was clearly unenforceable, either even though it was clearly unambiguously illegal or not or not legally uh, defensible, the speech code carried weight, carried social weight, carried symbolic weight. Right? They symbolized and contributed to rhetoric about um, being against a certain type of language, uh, adhering to a certain set of values. Right. And so we can step back and say, all right, unenforceable clauses can be included even when the parties, as Levy writes, even when the parties are on fairly even playing ground in terms of resources and knowledge. In these cases, the inclusion of an unenforceable contract can serve both parties' interests by operating to influence and communicate norms for each of their future behavior, right? This can be uh, one example that they go on to use is an infidelity clause in a prenup, right? Or a postnup agreement, right? Which says that there are financial consequences if you cheat, right? Uh, there, you know, the courts, you know, may, many courts will refuse to enforce these clauses, right? On public policy grounds, saying that courts, quote, are often loathe, often are loathe to inquire into issues of fault in divorce cases, and these terms edge up into such an inquiry. And yet these and other lifestyle clauses are included anyways, even when we all know that 
you know, they are not really enforceable and courts won't really dig into them because it's part of some sort of social function that they play, right? And so unenforceable terms are something that smart contracts, I think, overlook completely. This idea that behavior can be modified and that behavior, um, even when it's beyond the reach of a contract, um, can be expected, anticipated by the terms of the agreement by both people through unenforceable clauses, right? And sometimes this is because of a power asymmetry, landlord and tenant, uh, right? But other times this is so that it, there's a sort of communication about a quote mutually pre-commit behavior, um, or to us uh, express rhetorical allegiance to some sets of values and norms. Mm. This is something that because it's a technical, not a social. Constructs, smart contracts have no real way of dealing with, right? And then from there, there are problems of vagueness and then problems of, quote, long-term relationships, right? So the vagueness problem um, deals with just literally purposefully making something vague. Um, Mm -hmm. Sometimes in contracts... It, it sues one party's interest or another to not truly lay out the terms and explicitly you know, define the terms. And so the assumption is, or to give themselves wiggle room in negotiation so that there may be a calculation or of a cost or anticipation of a cost to breach a contract and, and, and that it might be more worth it to breach a contract and risk litigation than not. And as a for, as a result, you know, she as as, uh, as Levy writes, as illegal matter contracts are not enforceable if their material terms are left vague or open ended. An agreement to agree, the undertaking commonly in practice lacks legal weight. Right. This is another uh, dimension that I think smart contracts, as Levy talks about, fall short on. Right. Where Levy, you know, Levy quotes research by Stuart Macaulay, and who in 1963 looked at non-contractual relations in business and interviewing businessmen about how they did negotiations, how they negotiated deals, how they enforced agreements, and found basically that a lot of them left aspects of the contract vague on purpose or incompletely defined or not fully resolved because they were not really interested in doing so, right? It wasn't that they were just stupid and they left these they left, they had a massive amount of oversights, right? As Macaulay found, and as, as Levy writes, most significantly parties may choose not to insist on perfect meeting of the minds on every term because they anticipate and hope that their relationship will extend beyond the contract at immediate issue. Being exacting and formal about each and every aspect of an agreement might endanger the long-term relationship of the parties. As Macaulay puts it, quote, detailed negotiation contracts can get in the way of creating good exchange relationships. If one side insists on a detailed plan, there will be delay while letters are exchanged as the parties try to agree on what should happen if a remote and unlikely contingency occurs. In some cases, they may not be able to agree at all on such matters and as a result, a sale is lost, right? And and going further, carefully negotiated relationships perform, quote, only to the letter of the contract, again, removing the the space for goodwill or good exchange or good faith. And, and as a result, this quote indicates a lack of trust and blunts the demands of friendship, turning a cooperative venture into an antagonistic horse trade. I think that, you know, we can then zoom out and say, okay, so smart contracts, it makes sense that smart contracts leave the leave the social world behind since they are also like the consequence of libertarian design, right? Where um I like to I like to think of um 
this this uh, this PhD candidate, this anthropology candidate at UBC, uh, Hillary Agro, you know, talked on Twitter once about how um, one interesting thing she that came up in her research over the years was that there was a libertarian who she gave uh, MDMA or shrooms to, and he you know, was de-radicalized effectively because he, for the first time, realized that other people have feelings. (laughs) 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 And, and, you know, I think about how it's, is it a coincidence that smart contracts ignore the idea that maybe you don't need to have a perfect meeting of the minds because you would like to cultivate a world of interactions beyond the contract? You know, it's like, like even what we were talking about before, you could create a thousand contingencies for if your ownership was was questioned and you didn't have proof of it on the blockchain. But why would you do so? And that would also minimize the ability of people to just like in good faith or, you know, with other proof, but lacking that final threshold, have good faith either because of history or because of trust or because of friendship or because of some other thing, accept it, right? This 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 weird fanaticism about f- there's a there's a there's a sort of faux interest in equal outcomes here that really insist they are ensuring everyone is treated fairly, everyone is treated equally under smart contracts. But what they're really doing is actually removing some of the room for people to be friends and for people to trust and for people to work for one another or help one another out of goodwill and instead only do what they're required to do by the law when I was under the impression that all of this was supposed to be like also a contribution to a voluntarist society, right? We're supposed to be doing voluntarily the things that we want to do and no one can coerce us to where where actually the reality is you're only ever going to do what the law says you should do and not what you might want to do as a person because there's no contract. Blockchain is often talked about as a as a trust infrastructure. It's a solution to the problem of trust. But, you know, as you just laid out, the solution that they really pose, you know, through things like smart contracts, through things like the blockchain ledger, you know, accountability, transparency, the the solution they pose to the problem of trust is just to abolish trust, right? Being like, you know, well, trust is the problem in a in and of itself. And so what we need to do is abolish trust. It really is, it belies the kind of libertarian nature of it where it's it's anti-social relations, right? It's like all social relations need to be replaced uh, as economic transactions enforced by a, techno- uh, a technical artifact. There's no room for the social here. Um, We do not live in a society. We live in a network of smart contracts, right? Like that really does strike me as the ultimate ultimate replacement of society as uh, a network of smart contracts that you uh, live under the, the gun of. So... We talked a lot about smart contracts. I think it's a, I think it's a, a technology that, again, is very, very interesting. But also, you know, we we can start seeing places where they are or could readily be implemented to great effect, great detrimental effect in in many cases. Let's wrap up and talk a little bit about the O in DAO's organization. Uh, what what kind of organization is a DAO? I mean, we kind of talked about it already in terms of like you know it's you know there's governance tokens. It kind of looks like a, a corporation. In fact, there was a law um, just recently passed in Wyoming uh, where DAOs are given the same legal standing as an LLC, um, and so that you know in a lot of ways they are starting to look like 
another form of the firm, you know, of uh, of limited liability corporations, of stockholder uh, publicly traded corporations. Uh, you know, it's another one of these kinds of organizations like that. Uh, I do want to get to maybe you could talk to us a little bit about Constitution, Dow, and then I think as from there, let's wrap up and talk about. Um, other alternative ways that DAOs might be implemented for not these like, you know, ex, you know, quite explicitly and quite obviously like right wing, you know, neoliberal or libertarian kind of ways. So and, and here I'm thinking about an essay, a very interesting essay uh, just uh, posted by um, friend of the show, past guest uh, Jason Prado on his substack called Venture Commune. But before we get to that, Ed, what kind of organization is a DAO? Maybe a Constitution DAO as a, as, a, as a case in point to illustrate it. Constitution DAO and also another one I, I think is not as well known called Krauss House DAO are two of my favorite DAOs. Um, Constitution DAO was a DAO that attempted to fundraise the purchase of a copy of the Constitution that was going up for auction and was going to... I think some people thought that they were going to own a piece of the Constitution, but really what they were doing is uh, by purchasing governance tokens and NFTs to help fundraise, they were going to have a say in what would be done with the Constitution, right? And I cannot imagine uh, one of the options was cut it up into a billion pieces and send it to everybody who paid or give everyone certificates did we just miss our opportunity to abolish the Constitution via a DAO? <laughs> it is one of the only copies. So while part of me likes to believe that we probably could have, you know, that we did miss our chance to um, buy it and burn it, I feel like we would go to jail <laughs> for a long time <laughs> if we tried to do that. <laughs> um, I'm surprised they didn't just raise money to have Nicolas Cage steal it for him. Well, you know, That's I'm the Declaration sure. Declaration of Independence. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, my bad. Don't get our holy text mixed up, <laughs> Jeremy. <laughs> That's the first one. And then the second one, the third one is the Constitution. The second one is the Articles of Confederation. We don't talk about those, though. That's the Old Testament. That's the Old Testament <laughs> of the new American faith. <laughs> And so Constitution Dow, yeah, was uh, is a beautiful one, really, as we as we all feel in our in our hearts, because um, obviously it didn't happen. It was really funny that they got outbid by Ken Griffith, a friend of the show, suspect in numerous conspiracy theories about what happened um, with the GameStop trades and the halt that happened on Robin Hood. And I say conspiracy theories so they don't kill me, but also because nothing has been proven. <laughs> I I, I I had to remind myself that Ken Griffith is not the same person as Ken Griffey Jr. Yes. <laughs> I was like, okay, no, no, there's two different guys. All right. Different person. Uh, Ken Griffith, uh, sludge on top of a pool, a stagnant pool, a lot of money, outbid them by a few million dollars, I believe, um, because they kind of advertised their upper limit with an open auction. So um, after the Dow failed its mission, they tried to refund people, but ran into the problem that because it's all based on Ethereum, there are transaction fees, and sometimes the transaction fees go up depending on how much activity is present. And so if you're trying to refund $36 million, some of the people's contribution might get wiped out by the transaction fee. 
uh, gas, essentially, right? Which, uh, shit, you know, that happens. That's capitalism, baby. There's uh, risk, no risk, no uh, no gain, you know, no reward. <laughs> um, and uh, Krauthaus well, now. What, what is it that Matt Damon says? You know, o- only the bold or something like that? Yeah, <laughs> some shit like that. Up. Fortune favors the bold. That's fortune, right. Fortune favors the bold. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think he would know beating the shit out of people randomly, but... <laughs> There's another down, a beautiful down called Kraus House. It's named after the um, the guy who was the coach of the uh, the the premier uh, dynasty, the Michael Jordan dynasty of uh, the Chicago Bulls, Jerry Kraus. And um, uh, basically, this house is, says we are going to buy an NBA team, um, and we are going to do it someday. And we're going to own it and we're going to operate it and blah, 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 blah. You know, very interesting concept. Some interesting proposals. Not really clear how any of this shit is going to happen. They have raised, I don't, I actually do not want to say the wrong number because I don't want to hype them up anymore uh, than they are. But um, they had a fundraiser to raise 400 Ethereum, which they did. They've raised at least 1,000 Ethereum. Um, which is about $4 million uh, or $4 million at the time they raised it. But then there was the massive crash of crypto. But I think Ethereum recovered better than the rest. Um, and so the $4 million is supposed to be going to the first phases of this plan that they have where they're, you know, they're going to empower fans to purchase and operate a team, right? I'll read you a little bit of the uh, the the pitch, right? Because it's... Uh, it's, it opens up with a nice quote that modified they modified a quote that um, Krauss got in trouble for, I believe, where he said, players don't win ch- uh, championships, organizations do. And they said, no, actually, players don't win championships, DAOs do, <laughs> right? Um, <laughs> so, you know, they uh, have a manifesto that talks about Web, point, web 2.0, check. Uh, it talks about ownership and the institutions, check. Web 3.0 and how this is the execution revolution. Web 2.0 is the front end revolution. Web 3.0 is the execution revolution. And as a side note, we were going to try to define Web 2.0, but it's nebulous bullshit. So we're not going to bother. Uh, but Web 3.0, I feel, I mean, I think some people take it seriously. We don't. I don't think we do. We, uh, no. it's, it's, it's also nebulous bullshit, but they've learned. And so it's a little perfumed, you know, it's a little scented. I would uh, like to do an execution revolution. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. I'm I'm starting the I'm starting the Rose Pierre (laughs) Dow. Swan Dallas go, and so they they're you know they're in on Web 3.0, and so they ask what they raise the you know their manifesto says Web 3.0 fundamentally changes that, and the that they're referring to is this idea that um, up until now. And they call everything squads, basically. Up, squads up until now have been dependent on centralized monoliths for communication, participation, and transactions. The atomic unit of the internet is the individual, yet corporations hold the majority of the power. Uh, Web 3.0 fundamentally changes that. What does a group chat bank account or cap table look like? What kind of superpowers does a native squad currency unlock? How can collectives come together to glean upside, reciprocity, and socialized risk? How can online teams band together to do the unimaginable? The Krauss House is a community of hoop fanatics that are just crazy enough to buy an NBA team. 
To our members, being a fan isn't enough. This is a squad made of wet jumpers and saucy crossovers that refuse to sit on the sidelines. Team ownership shouldn't be limited to a handful of billionaires, but rather a movement of individuals that want to be part of the greatest professional league in the world. Fans breed life to the organizations in which they attach. So isn't it reasonable to accept a shared portion of the ownership and upside? We don't think it's merely acceptable, but mandatory. The Krause House is a decentralized autonomous organization governed by the community, the fans, the basketball lovers and purists. Together, we will write consensus rules that will bring the first fan-governed team to the game as first participants, then fans, and now owners. The collective of ambitious contributors whose goal is to own an NBA team describes the underlying mission of DAOs in its purest form, difficult by one, achievable by many. And that's cool, that's cool and all, but then you read, then you read the actual plan and very quietly, under their breath, and Jeremy said that it sounds like a German house music song genre. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, something run by the AFD, maybe. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and you read the subtext, you read not even the subtext, you read the literal text, and they very quietly admit, look, listen. This is kind of a crazy plan, and so I don't think we're going to own a team at first. We're going to have to settle for a minority stake in a non-basketball, non-American team, most likely, and then use that to prove that we have the chomps to operate basketball teams and then eventually American teams or share minority stakes in them and then eventually petition, beg, plead, steal, kill to get our way to owning a majority stake in a team, right? So really it's like buy a minority stake in a team that no one really cares too much about. And then you leverage that with vibes, marketing, finesse, and rhetoric and and money uh, to eventually convince billionaires to let us take a team off their hands, which I got fucking luck, dude. <laughs> 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 oh my but yeah, yeah. So these are DAO. These are two very interesting DAOs. I think interesting because one constitution DAO failed utterly. Two, because, you know, Kraus House is ongoing, will likely garner tens of millions, maybe hundreds of millions of dollars along the way, because it is like, it is rhetorically pretty sensible, the idea that fans should have more say in how a team is run, but only in specific areas, right? As they admit, they don't think that they should have any say in like, the in actually running the team itself, right? Who's playing? What's the lineup? What are the plays looking like? Who's the coaching staff? None of that shit. They're just, more, it seems like they're just more interested in like creating fan experiences. Like we should be allowed to design this. We should be allowed to name a stadium. We should be allowed to design jerseys. We should be allowed to get returns from ticket sales. We should be allowed to create NFTs for the team. Like, you know, it's like nonsense, right? Not the, not the top level managerial shit we all associate with the team, right? But nonetheless, I think that then brings us then to the question where it's like, these are two very different things going on here. These are, and they're both called DAOs. One of them is just trying to acquire an asset that it can then display at a museum or some other installation. And the other is trying to get involved itself in the management of a sports franchise as an attempt to catalyze mass ownership, fan-based ownership of sports franchises. They're doing very different things. They're operating with very different types of assets and they have very different paths to raising the money even, right? And governing, right? The DAO for Constitution DAO is really just concerned with a governance pro uh, procedure that deals with managing, with fundraising or was with fundraising and 
display. The Krauss House is going to be an intimately more involved governance procedure that is dealing with the money and the fundraising and the experiments at each step of the way. Why are they both called DAOs, right? And I think you know, Jason's piece does a really good job, I think, uh, even though it's not directly concerned with like the diversity of DAOs, it is concerned with DAOs by connecting them to corporations, right? And talking about how the corporate form, you know, it's in, in its origins over the past thousand years as a limited liability idea and the joint stock idea, and then the private corporation and the financialized fir- firm with shareholders, and then the iteration of the DAO, where you know, right now is an ideal period for the DAO to try and discover what t- sort of new innovation it might add to the firm because it's pretty easy to make them. It's pretty easy to make them and the, ter- the, the, the tokens underlying them, especially if you have a lot of capital, which a lot of the inventors do, and because there's not a lot of regulation. And so, and because the regulation that is starting to exist is regulation that allows it to more easily identify itself as a corporation, right? And so, you know, Jason writes at one point that, one thing he's anticipating is, quote, I imagine banks will offer traditional fiat accounts where access is gated by multi-sig smart contracts instead of multiple ink signatures on a check. Case law will develop around legal corporate bylaws intersecting with DAO governance. Some gov- governments will experiment with legal support for DAOs like the Wyoming DAO law. Hybrid DAOs are an especially likely path. A hybrid DAO is an organization where governance is split between on-chain token-centric structures and legal structures registered with a state or multiple states. Incorporated hybrid DAOs could specify that certain decisions, such as electing a board of directors, are governed by token holders, while other decisions, such as equity sales and fiduciary responsibilities, are governed through state legal means. I think that this is a sort of a really good way to think about it, where we should not get hung up on the exact iteration of what a DAO is right now, because I think a lot of people are just using it to speak very vaguely about crypto-backed governance. And think more concretely, as Jason is doing here, about, okay, what are the forms that could happen, right? Well, the, the hybrid DAO makes sense as a form that happened because you want to have some sort of on-chain token-based structures since that's where the momentum is. That's where, you know, that's the jet fuel for this. That's the development of this. That's where most of the use cases are being found. But then there's also the fact that we live in a world that's mediated by all these other legal structures, which um, there's no way in hell. There's no way in hell market's going to allow like fiduciary responsibilities and equity sales to be determined by tokens. Are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> you know, like, there's, the firms are not going to allow it. The shareholders are not going to allow it. The regulatory officials are likely not going to allow it. So it would be a good compromise to just never let that get to the tokens and have the tokens modify some of it. Similar to how Dow, Krauss Dow's vision of fan-based ownership is not really fan-centric ownership. It's a hybridization where some parts are still left to the discretion of traditional owners. Our new elements are given to uh, fans that are both created out of adding crypto to the space and also by the integration of fans to control stuff that they experience as fans, right? Mm-hmm. And so, and so that, I think that that is like an interesting way to think about DAOs, if you're listening at home, where it's like the future of them as an iteration of the firm is to like accommodate the the rise of crypto, the interest of crypto holders and token holders to create experiences for one another, and also to manage the experiences that they had with this company before crypto, while still preserving some core traditional stuff for traditional owners. Oh, yeah.
Exactly, exactly right. And, and you know, the thing that really interested me about Jason's piece as well is the, unlike a lot of the boosterism and enthusiasm around DAOs that focus on, yeah, like blockchain and crypto and NFTs, right? Like a lot of the stuff, especially like Constitution DAO, just strikes me as a as crowdfunding, right? Like it, yes, all it is is just it's just crowdfunding with NFTs uh, and 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 with the veneer, the the kind of like technological boosterism of like blockchain and crypto, kind of like sprinkled on top. But uh, Jason's piece, which we'll link to, of course, in the episode description, is worth you know really digging into. I think is interesting because as we've talked about before, with, with when Jason and Wendy Liu were on the the pod a while back ago, you know, Jason is you know. He leads a, a software engineering team at the Drivers Co-op, which is a, a worker-owned um, ride-hailing cooperative uh, based in New York City. And, you know, they're looking to expand and, and really be, uh, you know, a service that, you know, you can already use in New York, but to expand it even further and have that, you know, cooperative ownership, that worker-owned, you know, uh, company. But as he lays out, right, like there's a lot of legal difficulties in terms of registering uh, and forming a cooperative, uh, a cooperative. Um, like the the laws in terms of like, uh, you know, C Corps and LLCs are not written in a way to be conducive to the, the formation of cooperatives in which there's not, you know, uh, you know, one owner or or a family of owners, but you know, a, a hundred, you know, potentially hundreds or thousands of of owners of this uh, of this company. And you know, he talks about how uh, to to just to quote him, right? He says, you know, for people not involved in industry, I understand why they would argue that ignoring the rise of DAOs is the ethical thing to do. But I am a practitioner. I need to be looking out for the economic prospects of our cooperatives thousands of drivers. My job is to put money in workers' pockets. My project is challenging the largest platforms as the largest possible scales. I am determined to use whatever tools necessary to do so. I can't let our capitalist-owned competitors outfund and outmaneuver us forever. The sooner cooperative ownership is enshrined as a legitimate form of organization through DAO structures, the sooner we can build first-class structures for our future cooperatives. DAOs even present a unique opportunity to do so. The LLC is designed for a small set of owners. The public corporation is designed for mass ownership by capitalists. But DAOs, at least nominally, have already established a norm of ownership by all stakeholders, including users. I think this is very interesting and, and it's it's interesting because, you know, Jason has all the critiques that we've laid out of Dallas. He's well aware of it, right? Um, but it is also interesting to think of it from his perspective of actually trying to to form uh, and organize and sustain a cooperative and how... Um, DAOs might present an opportunity to do so, not through all the kind of bullshit fuzz words around, you know, blockchain or or smart contracts or you know or or all the 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 you know ambiguous and cynical ways that these boosters use words like decentralization and and uh, democratization, but instead to think seriously uh, of that vis-a-vis -vis the frame, as we talked about at the top of the show, of distribution and redistribution of ownership, um, redistribution of, of, of wealth 
assets and access. Uh, you know, that, that is, I think, where, you know, Jason is, you know, really thinking seriously about how might DAOs actually be used as an alternative tool that can uh, provide legal legitimacy to the and, and protections um, to the, the, the formation of, of cooperatives, you know, le, uh, legitimacy and protections that are not really present, especially in the, U, the U.S., uh, you know, legal code. It's a, it's a very interesting argument, you know. I I think, of course, you know, have our have our own skepticisms about, like, you know, are the politics encoded into this technology and this infrastructure ones that would allow that to happen? You know, especially because a lot of the actually existing use cases of of things like DAOs are largely just people, you know, rich people trying to get more money or or scam people out of their money. Um, a lot of the use cases of uh, things like blockchain um, are, are again kind of scams at best, but or or failures in a lot of cases. You know, there's uh, you know some work being done on on like blockchain-based solutions for uh, logistics and like traceability and accountability and transparency in like uh, supply chains. That you know studies that have argued you know these things have largely failed and not lived up to the ideals that are put forth. But you know, Jason knows all this, uh, and and I think it is very interesting and and necessary to at least have these very serious, on the ground perspectives and engagements with these technologies to be like, you know, to really ask that Luddite question of like, you know, does this thing need to just be thrown away and abolished, uh, or and sm- you know, smothered in the cradle, or is there something here? that could actually lead to socially beneficial outcomes that could be seized uh, for uh, a leftist project. And, you know, I, I, you know, at the very least, I applaud Jason for, for actually engaging in that question very seriously, writing a really interesting and engaging essay um, that I recommend people dig into if you're interested in this, thinking about these actual alternative applications of um, of, of this kind of technology, which, as we talked about at the top of the show, uh, you know, unfortunately, ain't going away, and and is you know, at, you know, poised to potentially grow presence and influence in a in a lot of ways, not just DAOs, but also things like smart contracts, uh, and and we need to get out ahead of it. And really, again, ask that que- that that Marie Kondo question: Does this thing spark joy? Uh, if not, then throw it away. But but we have to actually do analysis, and I think Jason is doing some really interesting analysis on that question. The paper, I come away with like really with a few questions that I think like he's raised that are that are ones that I definitely will be carrying forward. Because, yeah, you know, as he points out, a lot of the criticism, I mean, we, we're all skeptics, but it is true that a lot of the criticism that manifests about crypto is about the most childish aspects of it. And so as a result, we don't get to like deeply engage with other things. I mean, that, even though that is going on, right? We talked like this paper that we went through about smart contracts is a deep engagement, like a very specific critical perspective about the capacity of technical, perfectly technical contracts to deal with human beings on a social level. Similarly, right, if we have those criticisms, you can hate smart contracts, but you need to understand and flesh out what is wrong with them to also have a better understanding of what is wrong with contracts and what, if anything, smart contracts could be used to do to improve legal contracts, right? 
And so, and, and I think one takeaway, for example, from that paper is that like through criticizing smart contracts, we also come away with some of the ways in which regular contracts, though they fail us, also are good. And an alternative regime would need to preserve some of these things, preserve some of the, un, the ability of unenforceable things to be in contracts because of norms, the ability of some sort of strategic non, non-enforcement, the ability to have some vagueness, right? The ability to have good trust and goodwill, not dictate the terms to the letter. Um, and similarly with DAOs, by fleshing this out, this essay out, some of the questions that he raises are like, you know, okay, what, what DAOs come to us? I think at the end he says that DAOs come to us as imperfect structures within a system that we have, right? that we hate. It's a degenerate state, a degenerating state that's not good at educating, that's governance is poor in the midst of attempts by libertarian, Rothbardian, Hayekian inspired uh, boosters to create a parallel system of financing and governance. These are not ideal terms. These are not agreeable terms, but we can in this moment try to figure out what can be taken advantage of and what can be used to boost and our systems that we'd like to see and also lay seeds for the new world that we want to build, right? And I think the, the question about cooperatives, the questions about transnationals and, and, and also the fears that he raises, right, about how now DAOs have also lowered the cost of or the barrier to entry for creating these like unaccountable networks where capital, large capital flows can enter pretty quickly that were only available to elites to anyone now, right? ISIS DAO, I love that. <laughs> um, that phrase it was uh it's both like very serious and silly in that like yeah what are you going to do like we would that would be a bit i can see that being a bit someone comes up with about isis having a doubt but what is to say that some militant right-wing racist group or some militant terrorist group um wouldn't be able to use dow structures um to do crime and similarly what is to stop us and I think using that as an example also opens a door for like, okay, well, we know that the far right and the enemies of various sorts would be able to do that. So what will allow us to do it? What would allow not to do not to do ISIS? What would allow us to organize in ways that we can't currently organize or to boost ways that we would like to organize, right? Which are all like, I think, interesting questions that Jason raised that really I don't see much else talked elsewhere about, except for some of the people I know who are on the left boost cryptocurrency, but usually in other ways that make me not engage with it. That brings us to a close of this episode of TMK. Uh, thank you all for listening. You can find us at patreon.com slash this machine kills for uh, additional premium episode every single week for just $5 a month. Uh, yeah, just catch us on the premium feed. So until then, later. Later.
dinheiro. 